P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. It's P.I.'s Declassified. It's Thursday morning. I'm really happy to introduce you to my good friend, Robert Orozco. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Francie. Thank you for being on the show. So today, um, besides what we are going to talk about, which is kind of comparing the old school techniques to the new traditional kind of investigative techniques techniques and technology, um, I also want to talk about Colorado licensing, if you wouldn't mind doing that. Okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. It's a, so, it's a very timely uh, time to, to talk about it. Yeah, and we need to get a lot of support for you guys. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Too soon. Okay. Come back to that. Uh, okay. So, um, Robert, you haven't been on our show before, so uh, I'd like people to know a little bit about you. I know you're the co-owner of Advanced Professional Investigators Investigations, isn't it? Advanced Professional Investigations. And so how long have you been doing uh, investigations, private investigations? Yeah, so I've, I've been a professional investigator for close to 20 years now. And Andrea and I have owned Advanced Professional Investigations since 2006. And, and um, um, yeah, we're based in Colorado near Denver, we do work all over Colorado, and we also hold a license in Arizona. Oh, great. Okay, I didn't know that. And Andrea's your wife? Uh, yes, Andrea is my wife. <laughs> I mean, I know that, but maybe yeah, just other to clarify. people don't know. <laughs> okay, and so uh, how did you get started? Well, I got started actually by accident. Um, I didn't have any prior schooling in investigations, didn't even have any prior interest, uh, went to school. Uh, I went to CU Boulder for engineering, actually, and um, through the co- uh, course of my schooling, I found out that you know engineering wasn't actually my calling, so went into the workforce and uh, was in construction for a couple years, and so almost 20 years ago, back when there were still ads in newspapers, I saw an ad uh, for a company that was uh, looking for an insurance investigator, and um, the ad said, no experience necessary, we'll train the right person, bilingual plus, and I thought, well, I have zero experience in investigations, I don't even know what an insurance investigator is, uh, I'd like to know. <laughs> Uh, it sounds interesting, but um, I am bilingual, so you know. Anyways, I applied and for the position, and lo, to my surprise, I was um, called in for an interview. And even after the interview, I thought, "Oh, they'll never hire me. They'll find somebody with experience." And again, to my surprise, I ended up getting the job. Been doing it ever since. Neat, very neat. And the other language you speak is is. 
Spanish. Okay, and uh, so it's, did you? Yeah, Spanish. I, I, yeah, that's my my dad's from Mexico and uh, is an American citizen. But uh, yeah, uh, my uh, brother and sister and myself, we grew up, you know, talking Spanish around the house. So it so just we, was a natural second language for me. Okay, so would you consider Spanish your first language or your second language? No, actually, my second language, being that that uh, we, you know born and raised here in the United States. Um, I still, uh, you know, look at English as my strong language, my uh, preferred language. But of course, Spanish is something that we grew up uh, talking conversationally around the house. Uh, But I have to say that my Spanish is is just that it's conversational. I don't know uh, formal Spanish like people Mm. say who grew up in Mexico do. Right. Although Spanish is, from my perspective, at least in California, Spanish is critical, and I wish I knew it. I don't. I'm not bilingual uh, with Spanish, and uh, I I wish I were, because uh, mm-hmm. I, I just uh, get in contact with that with it all the time. Um, sure. I, is is Colorado the same way now? Or yeah, it is. It's not just yeah. California, Colorado. There's, yeah. you know, it's it's very much needed, and there is actually, I believe, a a big lack of professional investigators that are bilingual, and not just Spanish, other languages, but certainly right. uh, because of the amount of subjects that we may encounter that, or that uh, we need to take statements from interviews. Um, there's just not enough Spanish-speaking investigators out there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely true. Even it's even hard to find interpreters to go with investigators. Uh, it's really hard. So, for those of you out there sure. wanting to get involved in investigations, learn Spanish for sure. <laughs> uh, so, so Robert, what what did you actually go to school for? Engineering. Engineering. What kind of engineering? Well, I started out in mechanical engineering, and about a year after that, switched over to architectural engineering, and after all that, I ended up realizing, well, you know, uh, just, I guess my my schooling was um, a little bit too much of the theoretical. I wanted a little bit more hands-on with Mm. doing the actual uh, engineering work, and um, just felt like it wasn't my calling at that time. So what that tells me is you're very organized. <laughs> yes, actually, I, <laughs> I am. Uh, I would have to say pretty meticulous. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that really lends itself to the type of work that I do with surveillance, where I can uh, be very much singularly focused on on what I'm watching or who I'm watching, and that's all that exists to me at that time. And whereas. Um, Andrea, her background is different. You know, she didn't come from an engineering background, but she's much more of the multitasker in our company. So, um, you know, it works really well between her and I. That's great. And so when you went to work for the, as an insurance investigator, was your main uh, function surveillance? It was, it was. And and again, because um, I, I was hired by a company that, that did a, a, a lot of um, 
insurance investigations is what they call it. But yeah, essentially what it was is they, they worked for um, a lot of insurance companies doing the workers' compensation cases and other types of insurance defense. But primarily, I learned uh, surveillance, and that's what I did, although they did occasionally have me do uh, what they call um, AOE, COE cases, which mm-hmm. is um, a lot of statements and interviews for uh, workers' compensation cases. Yeah, these are the kind of cases that happen uh, either on the job or on the way to and from the job? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay. Yeah, so those require uh, actually talking to people and getting information from them. Yes, yeah, gen- generally on the nature of of what somebody may have witnessed or if it's the claimant themselves, how the injury occurred and um, um, where it occurred, those type of things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know you're, uh, you're also a past president of the uh, Private Investigators Association in Colorado. Uh, before we get involved in your topic, let's talk a little bit about Colorado because I think um, this is a really critical time for you folks and your licensing. So, um, so you were president when, in 2010? 2010 to, 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 yep, 2010 to 2012 okay. was my term. All right. And you were right in the middle of when Colorado got licensed for, for licensed investigators. Well, yeah, I was a part of that of that effort at that time there our association in Colorado which is PPIC the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado it had had several previous efforts and right around 2010 um it to 2012 we uh prepared for another effort for PI licensing and right around 2012 or 13 is when a voluntary form of, of PI licensing went into effect in Colorado. And later, that voluntary form became a mandatory license, which took effect in 2015. And this is so important. You know, there's only, I believe, maybe four or five states now in the nation that aren't licensed. And it's it's such a consumer protection issue. Private investigators have, have you know, you and I both know, have all kinds of personal identifying information in folks, and uh, there needs to be oversight. And without that oversight, the only recourse an individual has is to file a civil lawsuit if there's a problem. So tell me, tell me what, you, what, what you guys are doing about licensing. So, and the, the reason why it's such a timely topic at this time is that uh, again, licensing has been in place in Colorado on a mandatory basis since 2015. However, um, our licensing program is due to sunset or to be repealed in September of 2020. And that's just happens, I don't know about other states, but certainly in Colorado, every licensing program undergoes a sunset in which if um, there is not uh, a recommendation to continue the program going, then eventually the program will become repealed. Mm -hmm. And ours, September 2020, well, the regulatory agency that that provides our licensing 
here in Colorado is called DORA, the Department of Regulatory Agencies. They, recent, they recently issued a recommendation of not continuing the PI licensing program for Colorado, um, which was very disappointing, uh, very discouraging news. And their stance is because they feel there is a lack of public harm. So that speaks to the consumer protection that you're talking about, Francie. And um, of course, we all know better. Those of us in the profession, we, we know better. Uh, but that's just the stance that they issued. Um, and we disagree respectfully. And so what, what are they basing that on? Because they've had no complaints. Uh, they're basing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're basing that on their data, which their data is all they focus on is the amount of complaints that they've uh, received since the program was put into effect. Um, and uh, yeah, they cite their data, which is a lack of harm. And the very little harm they say there is, is mostly some low-end uh, financial um, things between the PIs and the consumer and the consumers. They should look and at so, California. <laughs> they should look at California. You know, I mean, uh, um, we just had a private investigator released from prison after about 20 years uh, for misdeeds. So there is, there is potential harm. Absolutely. And again, those of us that have been in the profession, um, we all know that um, it's just simply a matter of, of trying to convince Dora, although the, the way I explain it is Dora is just simply, they're one cook in the kitchen here, you know, and there's several mm. cooks and we're, uh, you know, the rest of us are, are going to press forward. We're going to show with our statistics and our data that, that there has been uh, uh, harm uh, to consumers and to the general public. Um, Absolutely. For investigators who are conducting unethical work, or, or you know, uh, well, work not only that, that's just yeah, not up to standards. Not only that is there is potential harm. More importantly, that there's they've had no harm, but there's potential harm always. And without exactly. license, you have no recourse. It's just it's crazy. So, exactly. Robert, the, what yes. what can People, people are listening to this show. What can they do? Is, okay. is there anything the rest of the world can do for Colorado? Well, definitely investigators that, <clears throat> that live here in Colorado, private investigators, um, they can um, submit any examples that they have of, of any PIs that, that, that they know have, um, have done unethical things or consumer harm. Uh, harm to the public, uh, send us those examples to PPIC and, uh, because we plan on, on discussing those and submitting some of those examples um, to Colorado legislators. And as far as other um, states across the country, we absolutely um, encourage their associations, for example, Cali, to send a letter of support um, for our licensing effort, um, because you yeah. know the legislators do see those. They they do want to know uh, how much support there is out there, and not just that Colorado is out in the left field doing this all by themselves. You know, we are, or or 
well, currently one of 45 states that have some form of PI licensing. There's only four or five that don't. So um, why do we want to revert back to that? Exactly. So just to let you know that I have spoken to the Kelly's president, uh, Robert Rice, and you will be getting a letter from California. So, oh, thank you so much, Francie. We really news. appreciate that. <laughs> that's breaking news. So, uh, okay, so where do people send their letters? Um, let's see. Well, you can actually, I'm the current uh, vice president of legislation for PPIC. So after, after my term as president of PPIC ended, you know, I was off the board and, and you know, stayed off for several years. Um, and I just recently became uh, vice president of uh, legislation again. Okay. Um, so those emails can be sent to me and um, I'll give you my email address. It's Robert at API 77. Okay. Hold okay. On. <laughs> Let me just, sorry. Robert at API 77 CO.com. Okay. So it stands for Colorado, I guess. Colorado? Yes. CO is Colorado or not? Yes, CO is okay. Colorado. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you. Uh, so, folks, if you're listening out there, if you are in contact, if you are the, the president of your state association or you know the president of your state association, give him a call, send him an email, tell him to contact Robert and send a letter of support because uh, it's it's critical. And we have, we have what? Ten months. You have ten months to get this done. So let's get on the ball. Give them, give them all youth support you can give them. All right, we're going to take well, a and quick the, break. And the legislative session will start in January. Oh, in January. Okay. For us. So you want the letters yeah. now? I would say in the next month or two would be great. Okay. Okay. <laughs> great. All right. Very good. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, Robert. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back. I'm back with Robert Orozco. Uh, Robert is an investigator in Colorado, and he specializes in surveillance techniques and all kinds of other things. So, Robert, let's let's just talk. You had an article in PI Magazine. PI Magazine is one of our fabulous sponsors, Jim Nanos and uh, Nicole Cusinelli. And you have an article that you talked about traditional investigation techniques in the modern times. So, let's. What I'd like you to do is kind of contrast. Um, what investigators used to do versus what they do today and what works better or best. Sure. Sure. And, and you know, the, I think what the impetus for me writing this article is because I've, I, over the years, so now that I've I told you, Francie, how I got started as an investigator, when I got started, I, I was uh, thankfully uh, blessed enough that I worked for a company that taught me how to do investigations. Right. And I know that not all, not all investigators, PIs, get into the profession in that form. A lot of them just simply put up a shingle and, and because they have an interest in doing the work, and, and then they just um, set up their own shop and, and start doing investigations. But what I've noticed with a lot of those incoming investigators is that um, – uh, right away, they get into the idea of, okay, let me buy the best equipment. Let me uh, purchase the gadgets. Let me get every database there is out there. And I look at those as those are tools, you know, mm-hmm. but those don't make you for a good uh, investigator. That It's not a substitute for the learning that has to take place that has to take place, the skills that you have to acquire, the techniques, the experience, you know, you have to hone your craft. It takes, it takes years to do that. And there's no amount of equipment that's going to be a substitute for that. That's, that's why I uh, wrote this article. Well, you, you talk about honing your craft. So compare with the way you did things when you started out to the way you do them, things now. Sure. So again, when I started out, um, I started out doing a lot of uh, of surveillance, and uh, with the surveillance um, at the time that I started, almost twenty years ago, that there was really not much out there for GPS tracking or the stationary surveillance platforms that um, that a lot of investigators hear about nowadays, or or even the use of drones. So I had to do it what I call the old school way. You know, you have to learn how to set up um, in a neighborhood in a discreet manner and you're sitting in that car and, um, and you have to learn how to not be noticed, how to blend in. 
Mm-hmm. And when you um, get mobile um, activity you, or when you have activity and you get somebody um, leaving their house, you have to learn how to conduct mobile surveillance, how to not lose that person, how to not get made. And a, a lot of those type of um, techniques, there's just simply no substitute. Again, no GPS tracker can can assist with that. No stationary um, surveillance um, equipment can assist with that. That's something that you have to learn yourself. So um, what's the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you, Robert? Well, the most embarrassing, you know, it's, of course, uh, and here's what I tell um, investigators that, that are young is, uh, certainly in surveillance, every surveillance investigator will get made at some point in their life. You know, if, if, if anybody who does surveillance tries to claim that they've never been made, they're, they're lying because um, it just, it will happen. There are some uh, individuals that you conduct surveillance on that uh, come into, or when you start your surveillance, they're already very watchful because they, they're experienced in their in whatever claims they've had before or whatever the case is, they just already know to look for surveillance and it it happens. And so I would say just getting made is is a very embarrassing thing uh, to have happen, but it also Mm -hmm. is a thing that um, that's when I feel like you learn the most as an investigator is the mistakes that you make, not the successes that you have. The successes in your mind, you're just going to register them as that, and you're on to the next case, on to the next. But it's those mistakes that you make that really kind of, you know, set in your mind, and, and you hopefully will think to yourself, okay, i got to make sure I never make those mistakes again. So talk. let's talk about mistakes. What kind of mistakes can folks make? Well, um, so again, with surveillance, just simply maybe following too close or not reading somebody's body language. You know, those, these are things that uh, it takes, uh, in some cases, years to really hone that down and, and find that right balance. Um, and when you're young or when, when you're inexperienced, maybe you don't, mm, I know me as a surveillance investigator didn't really know how to read people's body language well enough. Um, to read the telltale signs that they had that that they were being um, very observant or or that they suspected that I was in the area. Um, what what <clears throat> kinds of things would indicate to you that they suspected that you they were on to you? Well, somebody just in general, somebody who is very hyper aware of their surroundings. Um, maybe they are any movement that they see they're they're locking in on that. You know, they're watching that, you know, if somebody's walking near them, you know, they, they take a hard look at them or, or if a vehicle passes by them, they're taking a look at that. But, but then the, the, the very clever individuals don't even give very many of those clues. And, um, it just takes a, a lot of experience and, and sometimes it can be nothing more than a gut feeling on the investigator's part, but you have to be able to listen to those, those gut feelings. You have to be able to uh, hone those over time. That kind mm-hmm. of tells you, okay, 
you know, something's not right here. This person, you know, um, this claimant is doubling back or, or they are going through this residential area when they could have just taken a more quicker route. Um, you have to be able to, to um, um, read those things, kind of put them in the back of your mind and, and, and register them um, because it may be a warning that, that uh, the person's being watchful. Yeah, good. That's good. So um, let, let's let's be clear to the folks that are listening. The people that you're following uh, for workers' comp are people that are p- potentially fraudsters. They're suspected of fraud. It, it their claim looks funny, and you've been assigned to check them out to see what they're doing. Is that am I correct on that? Yep. Absolutely. All of the work that we do, Francie, in our in our company is for a legal purpose, meaning that there is there is a reason why the client is assigning us um, to do a surveillance or any type of investigation. We don't do what we call curiosity cases. Uh, what is a, what's so like Colorado is <laughs> okay. a curiosity so to, case? <laughs> sure. So Colorado is a no fault state for divorce. So mm-hmm. curiosity cases to us, um, a classic example of that is an infidelity case because it simply has no bearing for the splitting of assets in Colorado uh, for the most part. Now, if we do the case through an attorney and a, uh, or the attorney says, okay, well, we'd like to go, um, you know, we feel that there is an angle here for a legal basis, then sure, m- maybe we'll uh, accept the case for an infidelity. But uh, other than that, in Colorado, being a no-fault state, we just don't take those type of uh, curiosity cases. Um, so we work cases that have a legal basis, workers' comp, insurance defense cases, uh, corporate cases, and, and we do other family law cases, certainly uh, child custody and child endangerment, those type of cases where there is a legal basis. We absolutely take those yeah, for sure. So, so I I suspect that um, you're often asked if you do cheaters type cases. Yes, again, the, the infidelity and with Colorado yeah. being a no fault state, it's just um, those are. I mean, we don't tell the client that, but that that they're curiosity cases. But really, that's what they are. There's just no. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not going to make any type of a legal determination in in a uh, court of law. Yeah. Yeah. And and child custody cases or child endangerment, as you mentioned, those are very important. Um, and it that and those an attorney is typically involved. Not always. So if somebody calls you and they don't have an attorney, do you advise them that you only work for attorneys? Um, in family law cases we generally prefer to work with and through the attorney. Um, there are like there have been rare cases where we'll take a family law case and and there is no attorney involvement. Um, one example that I can remember is several years ago uh, we took a case where um, the client um, it was a father in New Mexico and it involved a custodial a custodial interference case where the birth mother um, took off with. Uh, the child, who I believe at that time was about 14 years old, and um, <clears throat> uh, the client believes the mother was in Colorado, and so we took that case directly from the client and actually located the uh, 
the mother's address in Colorado, did surveillance, and indeed found out that the child was staying with the mother. Hmm. Was able to successfully get the child um, back with the father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, is that called child kidnapping or child abduction? Yeah, well, well the, the common term for that is custodial interference. Okay. That's where the non-custodial um, parent is interfering with the party that does have custody. Mm-hmm. And um, in this case, yeah, the, the birth mother, the birth mother um, took off with with the child. And you know, even though there there is a um, you know she was the birth mother, but the courts had already determined that she was not to have any custody of this child. Well, you know, there's a pretty darn good reason when a court awards custody, sole custody, sole legal and physical custody to one parent, that there's a good reason. Yes, absolutely. You know, because they don't like, they really don't like to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. Okay, so let's go back and talk about surveillance again. Um, So, do you you use GPS trackers? No. uh, Our companies never use GPS trackers. Okay. And And uh, here's why. Even though Colorado does not have a law that specifically prohibits the use of GPS trackers, um, it is, I feel like it's a gray area. I actually do like uh, California's law on the use of GPS trackers where it should only be with the consent of the owner uh, or I can't remember exactly the terminology that California uses for Mm -hmm. that, but the registered um, owner, yeah, the register, the registrant, or the leasee, or whatever all the terminology is. Um, you have to have the. I feel that you should have the permission of the individual who is operating that vehicle to use mm-hmm. a GPS tracker. So, meaning a, a maybe a a fleet vehicle, a fleet owner, or something like that. And of course, for workers' compensation cases and. And um, other type of cases, you know, if if you don't have the permission of the owner of the vehicle, then you shouldn't be putting a GPS tracker on there. Additionally, with GPS trackers, it tracks it tracks whatever you put it on. In this case, if you put it on a car, it's going to track the car, not necessarily the person. True, that's true. Good point. So, what? Oh, we other have kind? many, many. Sure. What, I was just going to say, what, sorry, other kind of, what other kind of tools, uh, te- technology-type tools do you use? Well, so in terms of the, the, in, so the, the investigative techniques, is, that's why we, we're pretty basic on what we use because, again, we focused on making sure that we we hone the craft and, and that we're using uh, good investigative techniques. Um, for us, just in terms of surveillance, it's fairly simple. It's a car that is fairly nondescript, that you know is not easily recognizable for video or for equipment. We have a video camera. Um, I know that there are some investigators that use a still shot camera, but in our company, we've we've preferred to always use a video camera. Um, 
I don't really understand the use of the of the uh, still shot cameras. Um, mm. The the way I describe it, Francie, is is that oh, yes, a picture is worth a thousand uh, a picture is worth a thousand words, but video is worth a thousand pictures. I mean, we like to sure. have that that uh, video that shows the continuous action. Um, and it's not just for workers' comp or insurance cases. It's for child custody, again, um, corporate cases. Um, we like to show the full picture, not just one snapshot in time. So a good Plus, video camera yeah. and um, you can maybe some get a covert still, uh, video equipment. Yeah, you can always mm-hmm. get a still shot, a still a screenshot from a video camera anyway. If you need it. Exactly. That's what we do. We, we, get yeah. a, uh, we, we can pull still shots from the video and we can uh, embed those into our um, written report. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's where the still shots come into play. But when it comes to the, um, um, the surveillance product, we like to present our clients with a uh, DVD or, or upload the video um, onto the Internet. That, and uh, they can see a full video instead of just a few snapshots. So I'm assuming you have a camera that, where there's no sound? Absolutely. You, you have to turn the sound off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, our, we have a video uh, camera equipment where um, it'll record without sound. Yeah. Okay. And especially that especially comes into play with uh, the covert uh, video equipment, meaning when we um, get somebody into a uh, public place, maybe they go into a grocery store or a mall or whatever, and we go in and get um, video of them in, in that public place. Um, we have covert equipment to do that, and that equipment, yeah, has to have, even if it does record audio, we, we make sure that the audio is disabled mm-hmm. um, so it's not recording any of that. Right. You know, it basically only records video. <laughs> you always take the chance of saying something yourself while you're doing the video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've heard of you well, like that. Well, yeah, there's there's that, yeah. But we also <laughs> want to make sure that we're not going to um, accidentally record audio of the subject of our investigation, particularly here in Colorado with it being a uh, uh, one-party uh, recording state. Okay, it is one-party. For okay. audio. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're going we're to take a really quick break again. Robert, we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Robert Orozco, call one of Colorado's uh, premier surveillance investigators. Uh, he's also married to Andrea Orozco, who's the president of National Council of Investigating Security Services, who has a little ad on our show here. So, Robert, um, why don't you tell us, when you get a call from a client, where do you take it from there? Tell me what your process is and what kinds of questions you ask. Sure. Well, you know, case requests from clients, um, we accept them several ways. We do accept them over the phone. Sometimes we'll get a phone call. Um and sometimes we'll get uh, an email, especially if it's an existing client. So one of our accounts, the client call, uh, emails us with case information. And we also have an online uh, case request form. And typically mm. that's used for new clients or, or people, uh, maybe private parties that found us on the Internet um, through Google or whatever search engine that they're on. And so then they're able to fill out a case request that way. And so that's where the technology does work great is um, facilitating the work that you do. In, in our case, when we get those cases um, in, you know, we, we want to make it as easy as possible for the client. Some mm-hmm. clients really um, like to just be on the computer. And so they'll email us the case or they'll, or they'll fill out the case request form on our website. Other clients are very much um, have a much more personal approach, and they want to call in with the case details, and they want to discuss those with us. Um, and so we're writing down the case details. So it just really depends on what the client's preference is. Correct. Now, and so I, I find this very interesting. So you have a... a place on your website that people can fill out a new case assignment form? Yes. Yes, it's right on our website. Okay. And how effective is that? How many cases would you say you get in a month from that? Do you know? Well, yeah, it it is. (laughs) We we actually had our website redesigned about a year ago, and we're having some 
issues with the search engine optimization and all that. Um, but I would say in the course of a year, and, and we don't like to rely on any one form of right. marketing or case sure. generation. And that includes, that includes the search engines in Google. Um, but I would say we might get, uh, if I had a ballpark, it maybe 20, $30,000 uh, a year in revenue from people that just find us online. Yeah, And so okay. those individuals generally will fill out the case request form that we have on our website. Again, mm-hmm. our existing clients, our, our existing accounts, they already have our emails, they already have our phone number, and they generally um, like to assign a case that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if people wanted to look at your website, Robert, uh, what, what's the, uh, the web address? The URL. It's uh, it's API surveillance specialists plural <laughs> surveillance specialists dot com. Okay, all right. So people that don't have that kind of an access, maybe they can look at yours and and uh, do something with their own. Great. So uh, okay. So when somebody calls you or you contact somebody from uh, an inquiry on your website. What kinds of things do you ask them, and how, where do you take it from there? Well, in, it depends on the nature of the case and, and the type of client that it is. is. Is this a private client? Is this an attorney? Is this uh, one of our insurance clients? Um, but generally, we, we want to find out um, what type of case request, you know, do especially if it's a private client, do they know what they're asking for? Are they asking us to do a surveillance? Are they asking us to do a background investigations? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they asking us to do an asset search? So, so for private clients that have never used an, an investigator, sometimes it can be a little bit of an education process, educating them and let, letting them know what the best solution is going to be for them. Whereas um, an insurance client, they typically already know exactly what it is that they're uh, requesting us for. You know, they already know that they want to use us for a surveillance for a workers' comp case or uh, some type of insurance purpose. They already know that they want us to go out and uh, interview this one person. Mm -hmm. Um, So it just depends the type of client. And then we take it from there. And if, again, if it's a, a private client, we're trying to figure out whether there is a legal purpose for um, what they're asking for, what they want to use an investigator for. Um, Are they represented by an attorney? Right. What kinds of misunderstandings from new clients have you run into about what a private investigator can do or not do? Well, the misunderstandings generally have to do, unfortunately, with what they see on the TV shows and the movies. So what a private client sees in those TV shows, and it's so much of a, again, an education process and let, you know, um, taking the client through and letting them know what we actually can do and what we can offer and what is just something that has been perpetuated by the TV shows. Um, that's what we take them through. To, do you and very often get, 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you very often get a call uh, from somebody that raises the red flag and you think this is, they're not being honest with me about what they're looking for? Oh, sure. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, that's typically with private clients and, um, I always, well, the way I explain it is, um, they always tell you what they want you to hear, but mm-hmm. it's up to you to to um, um, to get from them what you need to know. And right. so they might not say, for example, if it's a family law case, they might uh, re- be requesting for surveillance for for some purpose or for you know the child custody portion of it. And what the client might not tell you is there is a restraining order in place against them. Right. Well, that would be important to know, right? And so um, we try to, you know, get the client to tell us as much as we need to know about the case. And then even if we accept the case and they haven't told us certain things, then it's up to us to do uh, the research um, ahead so that we can uh, figure out the rest and put the rest of the pieces together. Do you check on to see if there's a restraining order on every case you take in? Well, not, maybe not necessarily every case, because again, it depends on the nature of of the work or or the case request. But if if there's surveillance involved, then uh, generally, yes, we are looking uh, to see if there's restraining orders or uh, what other type of legal issues there may be between the the client and the subject of the investigation. So, in Colorado, how does that work? If you're um if there's a restraining order against the individual and you're working for them directly, that restraining order would also apply to you. Is that correct? Well, or not. And there's no specific law in Colorado that, um, uh, that restricts that. Um, however, it's, it's something that we generally need to know so that, um, it gives us a better determination of whether, uh, we want to take the case or not. If the restraining order is in place, you know how long has it been in place for? What happened? What are the details? What happened there? Um, <clears throat> and almost always, we, we won't take the case directly from a private client. Then, then we would only maybe work the case uh, with and through an attorney. Mm-hmm. And. And I and I I know the answer to this, but maybe you can verbalize it. How does working for an attorney protect you? Well, yeah, by by doing the uh, work with and through an attorney. So what we we will do is we're going to um, uh, our findings, our investigator uh, work product. That's going to be turned back over directly to the attorney. And so the attorney has that, and the attorney then can uh, make the determination to their legal capacity of how much, if any, information they want to uh, divulge back to their client. But, but uh, yeah, having that <clears throat> that um, you know work product uh, and uh, attorney uh, client privilege in place, you know that that is fin- that is great for the investigator. Um, it, provides protections for us as well. Well, and, you know, family law cases are always so emotional. No matter, it doesn't seem to matter 
what the situation is, they become very emotional and, and people react if they have, for instance, if they know where you're going, if they know an address that you're going to be checking out, they're going to possibly react uh, in a mm-hmm. negative way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and then to get back to the, the question earlier and just to tie it in with the uh, uh, with the equipment and the gadgets and whatnot, we do have, um, again, private clients that will ask if we use, you know, GPS trackers, you know, can, can I hire you to put a GPS on somebody's car or blah, blah, blah. Can I hire you to, uh, to use a drone, um, and take video of this person or whatever. And so again, it, it becomes an education process to let the client know what can and cannot be used in in what circumstances and um um and what shouldn't be done and what is illegal uh, to exactly. use exactly exactly and we only got about a couple minutes left but so do you guys don't use drones or or you have used them we're currently we current currently don't use them although we have um one investigator um on staff that that uh, has a lot of experience with drones, actually with racing drones. Um, he does, I don't know, uh, competition uh, races hmm. for drones. And uh, we're, we're entertaining the idea of uh, bringing certain, certain drone services um, into our company. But um, when it comes to surveillance, and this is something I pointed out in the article that I wrote, uh, the traditional investigative techniques in modern times, is that um, I don't recommend that any any investigator use drones to try to do physical surveillance on a person or a group of or even a group of people um, simply because of the uh, expectation of privacy um, I don't think that the laws have caught up to that yet and do, do you have a law in Colorado where uh, somebody's backyard is their private property it's um, you really can't do anything with that well so with the, I guess, the traditional physical surveillance where you're sitting in a car or maybe you're out on foot and you're on the ground, yes, there's the reasonable expectation of privacy that, that those of us that do surveillance we're very familiar with. And when somebody's in their backyard and there's a privacy fence and you can't, you don't have that direct um, line of sight to that person, you know, you don't, you can't. For example, climb a fence to take video of them. Right. I mean, it has right. to be something where you have a public vantage point. Um, and if you don't have that public vantage point, you don't take video. Right. With okay. the, the problem with drones is is now you're taking a device that you're not in. It's 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 up uh, in the air on its own, and you're controlling, but you know, you're not in this device and where is the expectation of privacy if now you're able to look down into somebody's backyard where they otherwise would have had um, the fence, that reasonable expectation of privacy. Right. Okay. And so that's where I feel like the laws haven't caught up with that. (laughs) That's true. And we have to go, Robert. I'm I'm sorry to cut you off here. It's been really good talking to you. And for the rest of you, see you next week, folks. It's PIs Declassified and Forensic Healer. This is Robert Orozco from Advanced Professional Investigations. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 